0: I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less-than-perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Keto, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. Dr. Lisa Rosenbaum is a cardiologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School And the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. She's also a spectacular physician author and is currently the national correspondent for the New England Journal of Medicine, the most prominent and storied medical journal in the world. She splits her time between her duties taking care of patients and teaching medical students, residents, and fellows at the Brigham, and writing at the journal on a broad range of topics from gene editing to residency work hours. She is brilliant and thoughtful and is one of the most gifted communicators I've ever met. I had the great pleasure of getting to know Lisa when she was a medical student at UCSF before she went off to the East Coast to complete her training. Once in a while, a student makes an impression. She conveys that she is operating at a different level in terms of sophistication and maturity. Lisa was that student, and it's been a joy to follow her career over the past decade. So I was particularly excited to travel to Boston to sit down to speak with Lisa She's an artful storyteller, and as you'll hear, she comes by this ability naturally. Lisa has used best-known methods in every stage of her career, and as she's navigated the dual challenges of practicing medicine and writing. For those of you who remember the first episode with Sid Mukherjee, this may ring a bell, but the similarities between these two talented physician writers extend beyond the fact that both attended college at Stanford, and both have spent time at The New Yorker. Lisa has a process for writing that extends to many other aspects of her life.
1: I was born at Stanford Hospital. Um, my parents were residents there. I spent the first five years of my life in California. And then we moved to Portland when I was almost six. And then that's where I really think of myself as having grown up. And I had a very happy childhood. <laughs> um, it was a very loving family. And I ran competitively. That was a huge part of my life in high school. And then I went to Stanford where I studied human biology. And then my junior year, when I had finished a lot of the pre-med requirements, I took a creative writing class and I completely fell in love with creative writing. I really loved the community around it. Basically, the people in my first writing workshop became some of my closest friends. And I um, sort of on a whim decided to apply to MFAs in creative writing after that and to defer med school for a little bit. And so I actually started at Columbia's MFA program and in fiction writing. And I moved to New York, I think two weeks before September 11th happened. And so after that, it was obviously like a really horrible year and time. And I found I was like pretty depressed actually, and didn't do any writing and dropped down and went to med school. And so I went to UCSF and then I did residency training at Mass General and cardiology fellowship at Cornell. And then I did the fellowship at the New England Journal of Medicine for a year. And so that was the first time it was the I guess, 11 years after I first tried to spend my life writing, that I was really writing again. But that was the first time that I had a chance again to, to try to figure out if I could make a life of writing because, it, or at least figure out how to structure my days in a way that were productive, as opposed to, I, I truly spent most of my days in New York, like, wandering around downtown and looking at the posters of all the people who died. Like, it was a really tough, bad time. And, um, I just thought, oh my God, I never wanna spend my life like not interacting with people directly and you know, I'm just not cut out for this sort of writer's life.
0: And tell me or tell us about this New England Journal Fellowship. That's something that I don't think I even knew.
1: Yeah. So basically when I applied, I I said I'd like to try to write perspectives. Um, and so that's, that's what I did. I did it that year with Danielle Lamas, who's since written a book and we became really good friends and we got to write together and she'd been the editor at the Crimson. And so she had this whole journalistic perspective and repertorial knowledge base that I completely lacked. And it was like such a joy to get to write with her. She's also just like intensely funny and creative. And so we basically got to work together and Really got to spend a lot of days writing and also just existing at the journal, which is, it's just like such a joy. <laughs> um, because you just have really, really, really smart, thoughtful people who get together and talk about clinical medicine and science. And I was like a sponge. I still feel like a sponge there. And, um, a couple things happened. One is that it felt like home to me. Not that I, I, I never thought at the time that I would get to go back. But the other is that I found that I could exist as a writer again, that I had enough in me by then to sort of structure my days in a way that weren't a total waste of time. And also, I think more importantly, that rather than trying to write fiction and make things up, I'd now experienced so many things that were worth writing about that were true. And so that was the New England Journal Fellowship.
0: And sorry, I've missed it earlier. You went from fellowship to... To the New England Journal or you went from New England Journal to fellowship? Yeah,
1: fellowship to the New England Journal. And then I did a, another fellowship after that, a Robert Johnson clinical scholars program at Penn. And and so at that point, that was another sort of life-changing time because I you know, was at health services research and I applied for it because I was interested in decision making. And so my mentors there, Kevin Volpe and David Ash, are behavioral economists and physicians and sort of foremost in the field. In terms of using some of the ideas of human psychology, risk perception, and this idea of nudging to change human behavior. So when I was a cardiology fellow and deeply interested in how we make decisions, how we use resources, it was, it was around, um, the time that the ACA was being debated and ultimately passed. And obviously there was this big push to get us to do less. And so I found myself like really interested in, you know, why we order tests, why we do procedures in the first place. So that was sort of the impulse driving me to want to study it. And so it was a incredible place to think about these ideas. But I found, and again, this was sort of a big transformative moment for me that I could write about emotion and risk perception and tell people stories, which in so many ways, sort of summarize like the key elements of why we do what we do, or I could like do an RCT and go through the IRB and try to get people to change. And I found that the former was much more like, I felt much more passionate about it and much more engaged in that type of work. So it was really, it was one of those like, okay, I'm going to try research. And so basically what I ended up doing is I was working with Kevin Volpe and David Ash. They were doing a study trying to get patients to take their medications post-MI and I did a qualitative study within that to sort of talk to people about why or why not they would want to take their medications. And what happened is that I realized that there's this idea I think all of us have that we can we can change people's behavior. But whereas all these heuristics have been sort of delineated from sort of like lab work, like looking at people making decisions about money, a lot of them at least. And in medicine, we haven't done like the basic science of emotion yet. So when I talked to patients who'd had an MI, I realized there was so much emotion around having had a heart attack and the meaning of medications that needed to be understood before we could sort of change whether or not they felt that the benefit of taking the medication outweighed the risk. So like, that, it all comes back to that: is like, do you perceive a greater benefit? But why you perceive that in the first place was totally fascinating to me. And so I ended up in that work, you know, it ended up being sort of a qualitative study, but I wrote up the findings in an essay that was ultimately published in the journal. It's called Beyond Belief. And it's about how people feel about taking medications for heart disease. And so I sort of organized it around various heuristics, like, so for instance, the affect heuristic, like if you have like a visceral aversion to something, which many people too, they say, I'm not a pill person, then they perceive a greater risk associated with that activity and a lower benefit. And it's not like a rational thing. It's not a calculation. It's just a very visceral response. And so that is just one example of sort of the things that under the guise of doing research that I found and then ultimately thought, okay, I would rather be repeating the words these people say, telling their narratives so I can convey this. I felt like the alternative was to sort of make a big table and quantify it. And and to me, that would have been less meaningful and also less able to to communicate what I wanted to communicate to physicians.
0: So I want to come back to a couple of things before we move on. So one is, when did you figure that out? Was it like, so it was a two-year fellowship?
1: Yeah, it was a two-year fellowship. So the summer after the first year, we we got to do sort of whatever we want. And so I was with seven other people who are awesome. I love deeply. And, um, you know, people were, were like going to work at CMS and things like that. And I basically emailed this guy at the New Yorker, Nick Thompson, who was then the editor of the web. He's now editor-in-chief at Wired and asked him if I could come help them with their health content. Again, it was still like, it's never a time when there's not a lot going on about health, but every moment feels like there's a lot going on about health. So I felt the same way. And I said to him, can I just come help you with your health content? They were just launching newyorker.com. And so he said, sure. But then, you know, obviously I was hoping that I could write. And so I started writing for them for online. So that was the first time I really got to write for a non medical audience. And it was so fun. I mean, I, it was so fun to just be in that office every day. I mean, and it was like a very different kind of fun than the fun I feel at the journal because it's clearly such a different environment. But I mean, it was like my first exposure to sort of the way New York media happens. Like everybody was on Twitter all day and I, you know, I didn't even have a Twitter account at the time. And anyway, I really, enjoyed this process of trying to communicate what I had previously tried to communicate to doctors to the public. And again, it felt like something that if I tried to do it in a research article would ultimately be less impactful. Not that I know the impact of anything ultimately, but it felt like there was an opportunity there. Plus it just gave me so much joy.
0: So I know it's impossible to kind of do the math on, yeah, which yeah. is more important, but it feels to me like that was almost a bigger driver for you is that you just clearly had more satisfaction from, I mean, you could tell that that was oh
1: from the writing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's what it all comes back to. I mean, if you want to talk about like the many years I didn't publish, we can talk about that because and I tell people this who come to me who want to write because it's very clear there are like two phenotypes, you know there are like the because we're all obviously driven people, you know, and so there's a like wanting to get things out and published and put it on the c v drive, and then there's these people who just have this unbelievably inherent gratification from the activity, whether it's writing or painting or whatever it is and and for me almost always been the latter i would be lying to say you know there are some things i write that i'm just i am just sort of getting out because now it's my job but like i've never felt like this is a job i i feel like every day is but i actually i feel the same joy when i see patients it's a little bit different but i would pay to get to do this you know what i mean like that's pretty cool yeah it is cool so yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, no, I was gonna say, I mean, there are people who say that about exercise, right? Like I Oh well,
1: yeah.
0: And then you were probably one of those people too <laughs> yes, but, I yeah. feel
1: the same way about yeah. exercise.
0: And it's definitely it's one of these like truisms you hear, uh, you know, like I spent the weekend at this high school graduation and these kids are sponges. They all wanna, you know, figure out how to go on and have successful lives. And of course they're always being told the same thing, which is do what you love, but in a way it's actually true, right? I mean, you were doing, you were trying to figure out like, what do I really love doing? And you are fortunate to be able to actually get paid to do the things you love to do.
1: Yes. And I always feel a little bit of guilt conveying that message to other people because I know that the reason I was able to do what I love is because I had like very supportive parents who very much like encouraged me, who continue to encourage me. There is not a piece I write where I don't say at some point to my mom, "I, I can't do it. I have to stop. And she says, you always say that. And It's true. And, you know, I mean, so that support is, is so important. And so the one thing I haven't talked about, which is like a huge part of my life is my grandfather, who and then this is so much at the core of of why, right? So my grandfather was a rheumatologist in Portland, Oregon. And he was a remarkable doctor. He had he had a practice sort of in the most like, fun street in Portland, Oregon with his brother, who was a surgeon, and then various family members joined. And, when he was around 70, he got a cold that wouldn't go away and went through all these doctors and antibiotics and told his illness was psychological. And then he was diagnosed with laryngeal cancer. And so he went through treatment and it was cured. And then he wrote a book about it. And it's called Taste of My Own Medicine. And then I guess when I was God, I was in grade school or middle school. Disney made the book into the movie The Doctor. So it was like a big deal for our family in Portland. And in the movie, it stars William Hurt and he's a cardiac, I think he's a cardiac surgeon. And he drives like a fancy car. And my grandfather was like, you know, lived in his garden, drove an old Buick, um, like not, <laughs> not, not what this guy was like. And of course, like the movie was very doctored. No, no pun intended to make him be like m- much more of an asshole than he was. But the whole point of the book is like doctor as patient conceit that I think is often, you know, overused by now. But the, you just like the experience of being a patient, you sort of realize all of these things that you did wrong. And he his writing is like so simple and so clear. But I could read the book a million times and I don't get sick of the message. So there was a sort of like thing in that I had this model of physician writer. And then he had four sons, three of whom are physicians, one of whom is my father. And then the baby is a lawyer. And then when he was still alive, I was the only grandchild in medicine. And my sister has subsequently become a doctor. But when I got into medical school, he decided that he had asked all these questions in the first book about, he, he would give talks around the country, the world really, and he would say... Why, when we can do more for our patients than ever before, are patients increasingly unhappy with their care? And this was like 20, 30 years ago. And then he decided that he wanted to answer that question, and he wanted to answer it with me. And his idea was that we would do this sort of then and now book where he basically sent me oodles of stories in the mail and they came in these white binders. And by then he was in his late eighties and early nineties and he had Parkinson's. And so he eventually hired somebody so he could dictate cause he couldn't write. And at some point the stories all repeated themselves, um, because he, he got demented essentially, which is part of the Parkinson's I think, but it was his life's focus. And so it became my passion as well. And, it's like hard to exaggerate like how much he meant to me and how much this work meant to me. And it's meaningful to me sort of on two levels. One is maybe three levels. One is just like neat to have this relationship with your grandfather. But the other two things are that I finally realized, and I want to write this book and I haven't written this book, but that I had so much, he wanted it for me to publish these stories that he sent me and I was supposed to respond to them. And you know, I then became a resident and he died I think two weeks before I graduated residency, at 94. I mean, so he had a good life. But I felt like the stories were like so all over the place and they never had a theme. And I was like, how can I possibly integrate this into something that's publishable? And I mean, for years I couldn't, but I've now realized how beautiful it is that he held on to the stories of his patients. Like that's what all it was. It was like Mrs. Bloom and Mrs. Smith. And you know, so each little story was just his trying to hold on to these people he cared for for so many years. And then I guess the third thing that, and this relates to sort of what you're doing now, is this idea of storytelling in the world, like what function it serves. And so my interest in storytelling is partly because of him, because he spent his whole life telling me stories, but it's also trying to understand the role of storytelling in medicine, not just in terms of holding on to what our patients tell us, but also how we make decisions about policies and the narratives that get propagated and form ideology.
0: I'm curious if you think a physician, because it's interesting to think, to try to imagine the way we best communicate to our patients, right? And we've we've all used multiple different techniques. And sometimes I sit there and think, I'm really just being a manipulator i mean it's what yeah, i
1: know that's the challenge right yeah. i completely ethically it's fraught i i completely agree with you and i came away from the study in fact like the way i th- yeah I, i'm trying to remember the end of how i wrote it up but this idea that like who am i to try to change how you feel so you do what i think is right for you
0: yeah and but it's not terribly dissimilar from parenting right i mean they're uh <laughs> I relate everything back to parenting because parenting is t- so incredibly challenging. And uh, the parallels are there. But I'm I'm curious about what you think the role – so in your grandfather's case, the role of his be, having been a patient, if that made him more relatable to his patients, and therefore they sort of valued his opinion more. In other words, like, sometimes I wonder if my patients look at me and they're like, look at you. you, you how can you even, like, understand what I'm going through or how, what I feel like because you've never – had this before,
1: right? Right. So I don't know the answer to that question because I think he, when he went back to practice, part of why he wrote the book was because he was so fr- he appreciated anew why it was becoming so difficult to practice medicine. So this sort of malpractice industry and insurers and all these things that we still talk about all the time. So I don't know how much he spent time with patients after his illness but I obviously know that he wrote about it in his book I will say that at his funeral so many people and their families came and I mean to this day like we get people telling us about what he meant to them. You know what I mean? So I don't know that I ever really bought that he was an asshole. (laughs) Like that is the premise of the book, of course, that like he wishes he had been more kind and present and less rushed and didn't make people wait and all these things. But based on sort of my whole life where people would come up to me everywhere and want to tell me about what he was like for them as a doctor, I don't know that I ever bought it. As far as your deeper question about does illness change you as a physician and do you empathize more?
0: Well, not even that necessarily. I, I trust that you would empathize more. I'm curious about it from the patient's perspective how they see you, how your grandfather's patients might've seen him differently. Right. Cause he was one of them.
1: Right. So I don't, I don't know, but I will say that I think that why I find it like so ridiculous that we try to sort of teach empathy is because I think, there's like no more. So the language we speak to patients is obviously very jargony, but the language we speak of emotions is like the most like raw and like essential thing that we do, right? So I always feel like patients can just like totally sense bullshit. (laughs) And so whether or not you are someone who says like, hey, you know, I actually just went through radiation and all this stuff, because I had laryngeal cancer, or there's something about the way you lay your hand on my shoulder that makes me actually feel like you care. I think patients perceive.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I guess I I love telling the story. I I don't know if I've ever told you the story, but when we moved to Baltimore, my dad was a young resident. He went around and asked, you know, who's the best internist, who, who should be my family's doctor. And there was one answer that he got at the time, you know, in the 1970s at Hopkins, there was this physician that was renowned as being like the ultimate doctor's doctor. His name was Philip Tumulty. And my mom had had asthma, you know, my mom was a young mom, and she had had asthma since childhood. And she went to see him for the first time. And I'm not sure how much of this is true, or how much of it's been made up after the fact. But the story that I heard, and the story I love to tell is that when she went to see him, they spent a lot of time talking about asthma. And by the way, just as an aside, if you haven't read the writings of Philip Tumulty, you gotta read it because it's just it's beautiful. It's amazing. I but would love to the read story it. was uh was he told her, he said, Susan, I think I understand, you know, your I think I understand your asthma, and I'm gonna tell you how you can cure it. And she said, great. And he said, I prescribe that you watch five episodes of I Love Lucy every week. And she was like, what are you talking about? And so of course I don't know if she did it, but she never had another asthma attack. And, you know, when you when you dig down deep into, you know, how he approached taking care of patients, it was a lot about putting yourself in the shoes of the person across from you trying to understand why they're there. And maybe he was making a lot of assumptions and maybe those assumptions aren't going to fit well in the modern world around, you know, being an overly stressed out young mother with two young kids and. A husband who's an intern and you know trying to go to graduate school and all that uh-huh. stuff but he was trying very hard to get in her shoes and I think he made this diagnosis or made this conclusion that what she needed in her life was a little bit more laughter yeah and so that's
1: amazing yeah
0: it was pretty cool I mean I love the concept of it and I think you know, maybe com- coming back to this question that I asked you, maybe the answer is not so much that you have to have had the experience, but you have to at least be able to imagine, imagine having the experience. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I think some people are, are better at that than others. And I, and I think patients definitely sense it. And even if it's not that you can imagine having the experience, I just think fundamentally patients sense whether or not we care and this idea that we will accompany them. Like even if I don't know what's wrong right now, even if I'm not sure what's going to happen in the next week, I'll be there with you at the other side, and I think that gets so lost in whatever's happening in medicine right now.
0: Yeah, well, we could talk about that, and I do. I actually am curious about how you would approach this empathy thing because I think that's a spectacular question, right? Can you can you teach it, and should we just be selecting for it? And you know, it goes back to all these same questions we ask about born and bred, and, and yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Like, I don't know how. I don't know how you cultivate that culture right and maybe it's just about giving people more time and letting them model and all the other things but yeah i hate to think i mean i had the same experience you did i mean we had an ethics class in medical school and i remember thinking and i had been undergrad humanities and took all kinds of different classes and i thought this is such an incredible waste of time like we're not going to get anything out of it right and we didn't
1: yeah nor did we
0: and so maybe the other answer is to get to get it earlier in life. And,
1: oh, I would say get it later. Uh,
0: so no, uh, it's not
1: that, first of all, they, they come at you when you're a medical student, right? And you, you like, you care so much. It's all you have is your empathy, right? And then they're trying to like, give you these, what I found to be very superficial techniques to sort of display empathy. And then they test you on it, which I think just it completely undermines what it should be in the first place. So I think empathy is important, but I also think that some people who aren't capable of expressing empathy are still extremely talented doctors. And so I don't think selecting for empathy is the answer because I think in the same way we do, de- you know, value diversity of, you know, we should value different types of talents in medicine. So I think that would be a huge loss to society to just say, we're going to bring in all these empathic doctors. So I wouldn't do that. But what you said about if our environment, something happens, right? This is to me like the most interesting question in medicine is like you take all these people who want to help people and who ostensibly care, and then we come out the other side and we're not nice to each other, often not nice to our patients, what happened? There is something in our culture and our environment that is destroying us. And that to me needs to be figured out. I don't know the answer to that question, but I think that we would see a lot more empathy if we engineered our environments in a way that let it come out. And I don't, I mean, maybe time is like the most fundamental thing.
0: Lisa couldn't be more right about the great influence our environment has on us. I mean, just look at her, for example. Her grandfather was a doctor and author whose reflections on empathy in medicine were so profound, it was the basis for a movie called The Doctor, starring William Hurt. Perhaps empathy isn't something that's best taught in medical school. It's learned at the earliest stages of life. How could a class or two replace what Lisa learned about empathy from her two supportive physician parents or her amazing grandfather? Lisa is one of the most empathic people I know. She can't help it. So I was also surprised that she does not believe all physicians need to have empathy. I'm not sure I agree with her, at least aspirationally. When you were at RWJ, so you're doing this research that you figured out pretty quickly you didn't want to do for your life. But I'm curious about one thing. Um, and that is in the work that you were doing, you're looking at an acute hospitalization, right? Somebody coming in mm-hmm. with a heart attack. Yep. And I, I wonder how much you think it differs people's ability to be able to weigh risks and benefits and make decisions about taking medicines, how much that differs in the acute setting after just having had a heart attack versus say a longer term thing, like, you know, taking a statin for prevention or even taking, you know, having a vaccine.
1: No, I, so I think it differs tremendously or it, it I think we think it differs tremendously. Uh, one of the most interesting things I found. So we hear this all the time, right? When you attend in the CCU, same is like, doc, this is my wake up call. I'll do anything you say. We all hear it all the time. And so that phrase is what got me interested in this first place. Cause it's like, what happens, right? 50% of patients aren't taking their meds after an MI. So what happens? And so theoretically, you would think it would be different than a preventive measure. I mean, clearly patients for primary prevention, are less inclined to take statins than those for secondary prevention. But when I talked to people, I realized, I mean, first of all, all the things that I think people already know is like, I feel good. I don't need to take medications anymore. Um, but the two things that were more interesting to me were, one is that people would say, like one guy said to me, this is easier than having the flu. Like I just came in, like you just opened the artery. I mean, not I, but somebody did. And now I'm out the door the next day. So he's like, you, you've you made it so easy to have a heart attack. And in that sense, really, I mean, victims of our own success, you know, but I thought that was really fascinating in terms of the psychology of it is like, this is no big deal anymore. And then the other thing that I think is super interesting that I don't think we as a medical community have really thought about is that we really shame people who have coronary disease. Like We have this obligation to educate about diet and exercise and smoking, among other things, blood pressure control. But I think as we impart this idea that you are in control and you can prevent this, the corollary is that I can also be in control to undo it. Or I don't want to be reminded every day that I've done this to myself and I can't prove this. It's just something that I sensed in talking to people and hearing their stories that both of those things, like either again, like I can fix this by myself because I brought this on by myself or every time I take this medication, I'm reminded that I did this like sort of shameful thing.
0: So, all right, I have two questions. Yeah. One is, um, um, I, I think what I'm hearing from you is it sounds like your belief is that to some extent, maybe not completely, but to some extent, people are sort of programmed the way they're going to be. And it doesn't matter as much about whether it's uh, acute illness or or you know, prevention for a chronic thing, that there's sort of just an um, in, inherent nature of the way people are. Is that fair? Yeah.
1: Think? I mean, I think that there's obviously like a drop off after an MI. So, I, yes, I think people are pro. I, well, I think that we don't yet understand how to unprogram people, but I do think that we are programmed. I do think prevention is, is harder than anything else. I mean, there's no question that getting people to, ima- I mean, that's why climate change is so hard to change, you know, get people to care about. But certainly I think people are more likely to take their meds after a heart attack than take a statin before they've had a heart attack. There's no question about that. But I do think that the difference may be maybe less than we think because of all the other psychological factors that go into medication taking post Otherwise, I can't explain why half of people are not taking them. And I, and I don't think cost accounts for as much as we think.
0: It's easier than having the flu. That was what a patient told Lisa about having a heart attack. And in some ways, it could be true. Lisa spent a lot of time in her early career trying to understand how people make decisions. It's a topic that's important to me in my work as a preventive cardiologist, but also in thinking about designing strategies for weight loss, or maybe even parenting. The issue is how we communicate risk, and then how our patients, our friends, our kids process it before making their own decisions. I find that this is very difficult to do when the outcome in question is far off in the distance. It's hard to get people to take blood pressure or cholesterol medicines to prevent heart attacks, When they are uncertain to ever have one, and even if they do, the probability is that it won't happen for decades. And to complicate things, they feel great today, and the medicine is at best a nuisance and having to remember to take it, but at worst is going to make them feel ill side effects. Lisa spent two years studying behavioral economics and decision making to try to answer some of these very important questions. It made me curious to know what decisions in medicine does she struggle with personally?
1: let's do something that we all have to do that I find very really hard, which is to discharge a patient from the hospital. Okay, It's like something that we all have to do every day. It's one of the things I like, like the least about being on service because you just like, feel like you're pushing people out into the ether. So, I bring it up because, first of all, there aren't great criteria to guide us, right? It's sort of this evidence-free zone. We all know that bad things can happen when they leave the hospital and bad things that can happen when they stay. So I think it's a really interesting sort of example to think about the emotional implications of decision-making. And so do you keep people because you like them? You know, are you more inclined or if they ask or they say, I can't get a ride until tomorrow? for me, I worry that I keep people out of fear. So fear that something is going to happen that I could better fix if I kept them one more day. And we all have experiences where like, you know, you keep somebody by like by chance, because they didn't have a ride. And then the next day, they're back to remake and like, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm particularly interested in the way that those sort of stories affect our future discharge decisions. And I and I think that this is something that I think is like so interesting in medical decision making and relatively unstudied is like the availability heuristic is as it's called or, but you know, this idea that like after you miss a PE in a patient, you order a PECT on every patient after. And I think that maybe the discharge example isn't, isn't the greatest one. I think it's an example where there are like lots of emotions involved, but I'm very interested in like what's going on in people's heads and people's motives. To and the clash of motives. So for instance, like the hospital has an incentive to get patients out and get new people in. And the team has a disincentive, especially if like you're admitting as soon as you have an open bed, a new person comes in. Like, what is the incentive of the house staff and the team to discharge the patient? Like that alone is so interesting to me. And why don't we talk about that? Because it clearly affects what people do. So that's interesting to me. And then it's interesting to me to think about from an empirical standpoint, because we, we can measure money and how that motivates behavior. And so there's obviously so much focus and policy oriented around this idea that if we just get the financial incentives, right, we're going to change behavior. Everyone's always saying this, the incentives are misaligned. And I think mostly they mean money. And also by extension that because we get paid for how much we do, we do more. But like I've never fully bought that. It's not that I don't believe that money motivates behavior. I think 100% money motivates behavior. But there's this other question of relative to what? Relative to all these other emotions. So I think that when I think about decision-making, I'm always asking myself, what are you motivated by? Do you not want another admission? Do you want to hold on to this patient? Does this patient have an advocate? Or does this patient have... absence of an advocate so like if the person had somebody who was advocating would you hold on to them and i mean things like that that i think are so important to our behavior and completely just not thought about because they're really hard to measure
0: and do you think that you overvalue or not you personally but i think i know the answer but i'll ask it anyway do you think that you or we overvalue these anecdotal powerful memories yes and so for example like it's easy to remember the patient who would have died if you'd sent them home but it should be equally easy to remember the one that you kept one day too long and they fell and broke their hip. I right. Mean, there, there should be right. more ability to be more rational about it. But I think you're right. I think we are all driven by these experiences, that we, the bad ones especially.
1: Right. And I don't know if it would be useful to understand. I mean, if you read Kahneman, I never have gotten a sense from his writing that he believes any of these heuristics that lead to sort of poor judgment can actually be remedied. I'm not sure if he really buys into this idea that being more aware of them will like mitigate the impulse to act on them.
0: Well, it's like the pen. It's like the, uh, you know, the the drug company pen, right? Like I can't fathom that some rep handing me a pen is going to influence me writing a prescription. Right. But clearly I also can recognize like Pfizer's not spending lots of money on pens for fun. Right. right? Like there's something, there's something that must happen.
1: Right. No, I totally agree. And yes. And I similarly, like cannot imagine being bought by that, but they wouldn't do it if we weren't being bought.
0: No. And then there's the sub, I mean, you sort of started to be into touching this a little bit, which is your process for, for going through this kind of decision is to try and sort of unpack all the bias that you can and try and really dig down and think about sort of what is the root here. Right. And I think, that's the point that he probably made and others have made too, right? That's obvious that there's all this subconscious stuff that we don't even, that we right. don't even consider. Like, right. it's just the association of having seen the word Pfizer makes you think Lipitor the next time you're going to write a statin. I mean, right, right. who knows Right, I'm making that up.
1: I think one of the most insidious biases that is in our workplace now, and maybe it's sort of inextricably wrapped up in how burned out people are is like the impulse to do less work because everybody's so tired. And so I'm hyper aware of that bias and not ever wanting to act out of laziness. (laughs) And this goes back to you asking me about writing and doctoring and the relationship because I think that every time I do a stint in the hospital, I know it's gonna end. And like, however tired I feel it's going to end. And I know that I will feel crummy if i like didn't give it my all if there's like if you're ever thinking like should i go back and see that patient like you should absolutely go back and see that patient do you know what i mean i do but like the power of like wanting to do less work
0: i think it's the most powerful incentive in the hospital
1: i completely agree so why don't we talk about that
0: because we don't talk about anything
1: yeah no i mean it's substantive right so like how do you prove that but like it just so overwhelms so many of our interactions and our decision making. And I just think it couldn't be more important.
0: Yeah. Instead, we spend time talking about like how to code things so that what was my favorite one? A couple, there was like, I can't even, I don't even want to go down the path. Um, <laughs> but we are very distracted. And, and distracted from what should matter. And so that's why, you know, I have a broken record on the sort of trying to remember the mission. And I tell the residents all the time, I say, you're going to be distracted by a lot while you're on service. Whether it's, you know, getting the right number of review systems or whatever it is, that's an annoyance. Yeah. But you can't let that distract you from while you're here. Yeah. And I always tell them, like, imagine that that's you or your mom or your grandmother in the bed. Yeah. Like, that's how you want to be. Treating these people as if it's you or your relative. And yeah. it's very easy to see how we all get super distracted by that because of all the things we've talked about. Yeah. But-
1: I'm going to tell them that that's, I mean, it sounds like so obvious, but we forget it.
0: Well, we do forget it. And it's easy to forget. Like, I don't blame them. No, I blame us.
1: Yeah, I blame us. too. I mean,
0: I blame that, like the first day on service, we now have these, like, you know, this litany of people to come through. And one of them is my, I mean, I'm sure they're good people and I hate to bash them, but it's this clinical documentation integrity group.
1: CDI, CDI. In like yeah. before 5 a.m. I usually yeah. get like three CDIs.
0: But they they now come to orient, you know, because oh. they realize that like it's annoying to get these inbox messages that you have to keep fixing the note and fixing the note and fixing the note. So they come to give you this orientation. And it's literally the first thing the residents hear when they come on is how to properly code for acute renal failure, you know, or whatever it yes. is, some nonsense. No. And again, the first thing they should be hearing is like how to be a doctor and a human and like this is 10th on the list but hundredth. yeah (laughs) yeah hundredth. it's yeah wow well how personally because i don't think it's going to come from policy right we're not going to have i don't think we can depend on policy changes that are going to improve this but how can we as individuals approach the problem of just at least thinking about them because i don't think that people consider them or maybe I I'm, maybe I'm American to think. No,
1: that. I mean, it's what you just said. It's like, how do we begin our day? How do you set like the moral tone and the mission for your team? Right. And it seems once you said it to me, like, oh my God, of course, that's how we should begin. If someone said that to me every day, it would be so purpose giving, but nobody does that. And so I think that sort of teaching and mentoring and like tone setting are the things that we can do to sort of both name the unintended consequences and then avoid them. So if an unintended consequence of length of stay requirements is that there is like so much push to discharge people before noon and as early as possible, then you name it because the trainees, unless they're like, going into health policy, they don't have time to become experts in what these policies are and what their consequences might be. And they might be recognizing it and feeling it, but actually being able to say like, this is happening because of this is like a very powerful thing. Like when I was at a cardiology fellow, this is when I became aware of public reporting. And like the first time I realized that like, like the sickest patient in the unit who needed cabbage most could not go to the OR. And like, I felt it and I felt the rage and I felt the, like the sense of inadequacy, like that I wasn't being the doctor for my patient, but I didn't, I wasn't able to articulate it until like it happened several times and I understood what the policy was. But that's not a very, it's it's very linear in retrospect, but it's not linear when you're in the throes of it. Do you know what
0: I'm saying? Yeah, I, d- I totally do. I'm just trying to, I guess what I'm trying to get at is what is it that you think you can take away from that in the future, the next one, right? Because that one is easy to see in retrospect. Like it's super right. easy. So I'm just trying to think, like, how can you approach this so the next time it's maybe you, the light bulb goes on a little bit sooner. sooner. Yeah.
1: You mean for public reporting specifically, or the no. consequences in I mean, general?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, just like approaching this. Let's take the example. I think the the public reporting example of we've all had patients who should have had procedures and they haven't right. had them, and right. We can blame a lot, but. But I think one thing that's clear is that the public reporting thing has led to surgeons and procedurals be, being more conservative. Right. right. Because they get
1: punished. <laughs> yeah.
0: And and so I think that's definitely an unintended consequence. I think it wasn't obvious. In retrospect, it's it's super obvious that that was a, a potential right. pitfall. Right. But I'm not sure it was even obvious to me at the time. I mean, maybe it was. Maybe I would have been skeptical of the whole concept. Maybe, I mean, I hate metrics, so maybe I I would have hated it. But just assume right. that I didn't hate metrics, and I didn't. I wasn't allergic to the idea that it was a good idea. Right? How do you begin to think through these problems before you realize that they're problems? Like how do how can yeah. we be all more open to that?
1: So I guess one thing I would say is we spend a lot of time, obviously, in medicine trying to figure out what's wrong with our patients and how to treat them, right? And so rounds are sort of formal, but I prefer the end of the day rounds when they're not, I can't stand like the sign out checkbox stuff, but they'll like really talking about like the data that come back or any sort of challenges that so often that's the time when the house staff's communicating with you about like so-and-so didn't get a bed or um, they're like really annoyed that we haven't discharged so-and-so or whatever it is. I guess for me, and this is convenient because this is what I do with writing, but then, so you sort of say, why? Why are they annoyed? What's this about? What is motivating this person? And so you start to sort of, one can imagine, like, in in addition to spending time, like, with the treatment plans and the diagnosis plans is to, like, think about the conflicts and the system challenges and what's driving them and just, like, make that a part of our lives more. I guess that's the only way I can think about
0: it. No, it's good. It's good. I mean, there is no answer, right? It's not, and I mean, this is why the world is so complicated, and why, in some ways, it's a curse that we have the capacity to think of all this. Stuff. I
1: know it'd be so much better if we couldn't, right? Yeah, I look at
0: my <laughs> dog, I look at my dog sometimes and think I'm so jealous. He really, I mean, no, I'm not because he's like the most anxious creature in the world. Oh, your dog is. He's super anxious, but but <laughs> I don't get the impression that like I mean, his anxiety is very discreet. Like, uh-huh. He doesn't like noises and he doesn't like to be alone. I don't think he's sitting there pondering like all these big, big questions and Yeah. driving himself nuts. All right. Let's, I want to, we'll, we'll talk about something that has been common to us and probably brought us back together however many years ago. And that that's Twitter or social yeah. media. So, yeah. um, I know that you're probably somewhat limited in terms of how much you can say yeah. and what you can say yeah. based, based on your role at the journal, but I'd be curious, sort of, Uh, There was a tweet that went out from my residency program today, and I think they just created their own Twitter account. I think actually a bunch of these programs are starting to think about creating their own accounts and whether they should or they shouldn't. I think it's a fascinating question, but they they basically asked, they tagged a bunch of people and said, you know, what should a new intern know about Twitter and should they be on it? Uh What can they get out of it? So I thought it was interesting, right? That's, That's a new concept. And then my response to that was, I'm really freaking happy I I didn't have Twitter as an intern. I'd have been fired. Yeah. I mean, I would, like, (laughs) no, I would have been fired immediately because, I, you know, I was so disinhibited as it was because I was sleep-deprived, and it's sort of like you're drunk, and I said and did a lot of things that were just totally inappropriate. But if I had, like, had a phone with me, I mean, it's like Trump, right? Like, the guy, obviously, he tweets whatever he thinks because he's disinhibited, and I would be tweeting it. Yeah. I I mean, I I can only imagine the things that I – I would have done. So on the one hand, I'm terrified, but on the other hand, it's actually, there is value. So I'd love to hear what you think of the sort of world of Twitter. Twitter. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I've become more disenchanted lately. And I, I don't know if it's that Twitter I've seen you actually even say this. You're like, does Twitter suck now? And I, so what I, maybe I joined in around 2013, I joined right around the time of the Boston marathon bombing. And I thought it was, so there was somebody who was like, literally like, you know, narrating what was happening at the, with the bombing and to me like that was amazing it's just like wow I've never seen anything like this and then the whole doctor medical twitter exploded and so much of my writing until recently honestly was sort of shaped by what I was seeing happening on twitter not only just like writing explicitly about twitter but like writing about conflicts of interest writing about less is more all those things where it's like people are actively debating i wouldn't be able to tell you what the stories are today unless i saw them happening in real time on twitter and i think part of what i've sort of found increasingly off-put in there are two things one is that i feel like the twitter mob that comes after you has just gotten more burly i don't know how else to explain it but just like harder to fend off so i feel a fear the only analogy i can think of is like skiing like i I used to ski like when I was a kid and like I didn't have like the understanding of like what would happen if I like broke. (laughs) And then I started like running competitively and I was like much more aware that like if I broke something, I wouldn't be able to run. And then I just had this fear and then I like wasn't as good of a skier. And I feel like this is like how my relationship with Twitter where I actually felt a little more disinhibited at the beginning and I felt like I could engage and then now I just feel scared. Like I don't want to be out there. I don't want people to attack me. I'm worried that anything I can say can just be like misconstrued, which I'm sure everybody feels. So I don't know why some people are more brave about it. But definitely if I were unattached to the journal or unattached to Brigham, I think I would feel differently. But I don't ever want to be perceived as speaking for the journal because I'm not. Right. And obviously there are people who would like to be critical of are, are critical of, of the journal, you know, and so I don't want to do that to the journal.
0: Well, it's complicated and you obviously have a different relationship with them and with Jeff. It's just complicated right. for you. Right. But it is interesting. I hadn't heard you say this before and it, it makes so much sense that Twitter is a way for you to find stories because oh, it's complete. the conversations that are going on that are, and they are really interesting. I mean, it's really... Oh, they're really,
1: so interesting.
0: Yeah. It's got... I mean, it, I go through these struggles about it too and I think some of it for me has been alleviate it a little bit because i've just turned off all the political stuff I've, yeah even though it felt good to vent and complain you know after the election I, I it's definitely better for me personally not to engage on that stuff and so i try and stay away from it i've also learned how to turn off and not engage you've been good at that from the beginning i think you had to be right if somebody came after you and attacked you you would basically just ignore it yeah and, you know, part of the beautiful thing about Twitter is that it's very democratizing; that you can have these conversations with prominent, famous people. Right. And well, actually, they will engage with you right. sometimes, right? And so that's fun and right. exciting. And so I do. I, I hate ignoring people. Yeah, but but sometimes just for self-preservation, you just can't engage in every single right. last argument.
1: Right. I think the virtues of Twitter outweigh its negatives still, but it's getting it's getting harder for me to parse. I definitely used to spend way more time on Twitter than I do now. I mean, I would just like. I would like spend a certain amount of time every day reading Twitter. You know what I mean? And I mean, some of the people who do these like tutorials that are amazing, but some of them are so condescending. And I think the other thing though, that i found it's now there's just so much advocacy, like selling of a, it's not a brand it's whatever, you know what I mean? It's just like, I find that uninteresting. Yeah. And it's, it's like the more Twitter becomes like Facebook or Instagram, you know, where it's like, the self promotion the the less interesting it is i like watching people debate people i would like to watch on a stage debate
0: well that to me is like one of the highest value activities on twitter yes. is that it replaced you know i sort of heard about and kind of barely witnessed the era at medical meetings where people would get up and ask difficult questions and they get into arguments at the at the microphone right yeah, there would be yeah. actual debate yeah about paper or a finding or something, and it would be tense and maybe even sometimes contentious. And for a lot of reasons that's gone away, it's gone away from a lot of things in our world because people don't like, I don't know, there's something about being overly confrontational and right. we are all unable to have these conversations without taking everything personally. But right. It did feel like for a while that it was going on on Twitter and it felt like people appreciated that it wasn't personal most of the time. I feel like you're right that some of these conversations are being viewed as being more personal. And it's hard because it, how do you read emotions, you know, in a text, right? I, mean, I think it's,
1: yeah, it's hard. It's, I mean, that's the question it's hard. of like modern society, right? Well, it's, you know, the <laughs> it's same like, thing
0: happens with emails and yes, actual text, yes, and everything else.
1: Yes. I think also there's just, it's so, I mean, when I said advocacy, I think what I really is like the virtue signaling. Yeah. I saw a tweet the other day where somebody was like, God if everybody were the kind of doctor they pretend to be on Twitter, then medicine would be amazing. And I think that that part of my feed ha- like has so escalated and maybe I just need to like think about who I follow at this point.
0: Yeah, I mean it's I, somebody I I we have to be super careful. I don't want to like get me and you into a ton of trouble, but th- somebody said something on Twitter a couple recently about um, whether doctors should be political. And it wasn't meant in the spirit of, you know, like Democrat or Republican. It was meant in like, should you be advocating for some cause or something? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the responses were all what you'd expect them to be today, which is like, you have an obligation to advocate for whatever it is. And I, yeah, I mean, for me, like, I'm just a kid. I'm just like a dumb 10 year old boy and love like to be entertained. And so for me, like, while I have learned a lot, and I love watching the interaction, the conversations. My favorite part of Twitter is the humor. Like I've just like for me, it's about I like it as a source of humor, and I like to try out humor. And I'm like for me, it's like a more playful thing. Uh-huh. But I probably also fall into the trap of being overly virtuous a lot of the time. And I think it would be better. I mean, I definitely feel like I'm better at Twitter when I'm more authentically me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I like it when you're you. Yeah, I mean, you're recycling whatever thing that was so funny I mean, that was just like brilliant
0: yeah well i was pissed and those are the ones where like i when i'm really pissed when i know like the thing i should do is to walk away from the computer or walk away from my phone and not tweet about this now but the best <laughs> the best twitter is the twitter where either i've had a couple of drinks or i don't walk away yes like it's the ones where i've like thought about it for too long that it comes out like oh this is like super you know canned and
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's amazing. I mean, the art of Twitter is amazing. People who clearly, you're really good at it. That's like I enjoy your feed. I don't think you're too virtuous. I mean, some people are inherently virtuous, and there are virtuous things that need to be said. You know what I mean? So it's not like anything virtuous by definition is bad. But there's clearly like a market for like signaling certain hot button issues in medicine today and just gets, I just don't find it interesting anymore, except yeah. by the fact that there's still a market for it. That's kind of interesting to me.
0: There was a op-ed piece in the Washington post a few weeks ago about how San Francisco's dying. You know,
1: I saw your, your tweets, which I loved. I read Farhan Manju's piece and, but I, re- I loved your, whatever you call it.
0: And I'm probably guilty of the sort of falling into the trap of saying San Francisco's dying. And there, there are clearly, clearly things about the city that while it's beautiful and amazing, there are things about it now that make it more challenging to, to live there. But this piece today that I read was awesome because he basically went back. So this is a guy who's a writer for the Chronicle. And his thing is he goes back to the archives and he found articles dating back to like 18, I'm making this up, 1870, about the death of San Francisco. And basically went through this exercise of showing us that this story has gotten told again and again and again. And in reality, are we really worse off now. Right. You know, today he, you know, pointed out that there were stories about, you know, this is a city that the the elected officials supported Jim Jones, right? They were they were, you know, raiding gay establishments in the fifties and sixties. They were reporting people as communist. I mean, there are all kinds of things going on. So is the city actually really worse than it was? And his I think what he was trying to say was maybe maybe it's not worse. So I guess for medicine, it's easy to romanticize the past. Yes. But there are probably a lot of things about the past that you and I would have hated. A lot of us would have, would have hated. Right. But so do you think it's really different?
1: I ha- similarly, not in, in relation to San Francisco, but have come across this. I, every generation thinks that theirs is the most whatever. You know what I mean? So I have like the luxury of being a third generation physician and it is so different. And I think that what I worry about most is that so many people don't know what they're missing. And it's not, I mean, I'd rather have a heart attack today than, than 50 years ago, but I would rather be cared for by a doctor 50 years ago. And I do think that we have completely, I, I don't know how it happened. I don't think anyone knows how it happens. Well, we all speculate about what's happened and we can all list 10 factors, a thousand factors that has let kind of sort of converged to create the state of affairs where we are right now. But I, I, Yeah, I wish we could start over. (laughs) I wish we could have all the science and all the knowledge and then recreate the system.
0: But you and maybe and I, too, have a thousand theories about it, too. But I do think it's interesting that we're sitting here together, two people who both genuinely enjoy the practice of medicine. And I I think it's I don't want to say it's unusual, but it's definitely not the story you hear a lot. I mean, I all complain about stuff. You'll complain about things. But for the most part, I really love that part of my life but I'm also blessed to do many things. And so it's not like my primary form of existence and I don't depend on it sort of financially. I don't know if that's the same for you, if it makes it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think about that a lot is that am I, because I feel like one of my jobs as a writer and like my broader ambition is to sort of like restore the joy of medicine for everybody else. Because for me, it's so meaningful and so gratifying. And I look around, I know that's not true for other people. And so I think, is there a narrative about medicine that is just like a downer narrative? And if we if we just flipped it a little bit, would people be happier? I don't think it's as simple as that at all. But I do wonder if, I, I'm pretty sure if I did it all the time, I would be run down and, and less happy. But I also wonder how much like having this creative outlet that is literally meant to like reflect on medicine allows me to enjoy it more. And, or, you know, for my father, it's like, being a scientist and and he derives tremendous joy from both that. And he treats patients with uveitis and that's what he studies in the lab. And, and he loves it. And for my mom at this point, a lot of it is sort of advocacy for women in cardiology and in political action committee. She's extremely active in the ACC. She loves it. But my grandfather, I mean, until he was 70, it was, it was all clinical. And I don't know. I I don't want to say things. We can talk about whether or not this is going to, piss too many people off but like this idea of work like balance and wellness is so interesting because for the premise is that that work is something to be left behind and it is something to be it's less pleasurable than life and like I've never I've never bought into that at least in so far as like my role as a doctor like work is life and writing is life you know and I realize lots of people don't feel that way, but I just I worry about the emphasis on dividing the two because I think we miss then like the opportunity to to make the time we are working meaningful and feel like life.
0: Yeah, you're back to the process product thing. You're back to yeah. I think I mean, it's funny because I just filled out a survey from my department about about Work fact bur- well burnout, Burn out, yeah, and of course one of the questions was like. Goes through the whole thing. Are you burned out? And one of the questions was, "What makes you burned out?" And you know, tongue in cheek, they said, "Answering surveys like this." But (laughs) it was interesting. You know, the things that they focused on in the survey, and there were opportunities to kind of fill in the blank. And but the two things were dealing with the EHR, so dealing with your messages, yeah, yeah, and then email. And I guess, yeah, those are annoying, and it's a little hard for me because I don't have a ton of patients, so I don't have a lot of those messages, yeah, yeah. But I think what it comes down to is this. I think what people get when they talk about the work-life balancing, I think what they're getting at is the intrusion of this sort of uh, less meaningful work into all hours of the day.
1: Yes. And I think that's totally legit and I don't have a clinic. So I feel like a huge hypocrite because I think that that outpatient EHR thing is like hugely burdensome and a big deal. And I don't feel like I should comment on things that other people have to deal with, but I think, I think you're right. And the answer to that is find a way to make the hours we spend doctoring more meaningful. I don't, I don't know how to get w- rid of the administrative, paperworky stuff.
0: The, it's impossible. Yeah, it's I impossible. Mean, <laughs> well, I shouldn't say that. It's not impossible, but I do, I do wonder. Actually, if there were, if we were to start listing all the things that have changed, I would bet at the top of the list of a lot of people would be that the sort of relative ratio of time you spend actually doctoring to doing something else, clicking, checking boxes or whatever has gone down in a meaningful way.
1: I think so too. And I think that's real.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. I want to come back to your life again. So you were in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. but commuting up to New York on the train to do this.
1: So the second year I moved, so the summer after the first year of Philly, I, I lived in New York and then I was so excited to be there again. Um, and it was, you feel like part of what's so like enchanting about New York is like the literary life you know what I mean so I was like working at this place where there are always amazing writers and yeah so I just moved there and I and I commuted the second year to Philly you know three times a week or so to finish the the fellowship program but by then I was pretty set on I was really focused on like writing as much as possible
0: and so what were you doing sort of in terms of thinking about your career yeah
1: (laughs) a lot. So it's funny because I mean I think this is sort of a problem with my personality, but I'm not good at sort of forecasting into the future in terms of what like when people would ask me at interviews, like what are you gonna be doing in 10 years? I don't know. But I was very focused on whatever I was writing at the time. And then I actually so some people take a third year in the fellowship and I was like, I'll just take a third year so I can just keep doing this. And my parents said, Absolutely not. You've done this is your third fellowship. You need to get a job. And I was like, oh no, like who wants to hire a cardiologist who is like writing and, you know, so many people had said to me throughout all of this, like nobody cares about like a perspective or an essay. That's not the, that's not the currency of academia and it's not going to get you a job. And so I called, I wrote Drazen an email and Jeff Drazen, the editor of the journal, and asking him for advice just because he had become a mentor and a friend and somebody I trusted. And he said, let's talk about this on the phone. It's easier. I was like, okay, that's very characteristic. And so he called me and he said, why don't you come work for us? And you can take a job anywhere you want in terms of your clinical work, but I want to see your face twice a month. That's what he said. (laughs) And I was like, wow, that is not what I expected. I mean, it just had never occurred to me. And and I was like, wow, it just like got my dream. And I didn't even know that's what I wanted. And, and it has been a dream.
0: I don't know how much of this process is the same as it's been for years for you, or if this is new, or if it's constantly evolving. But just to, how do you approach sort of like, I'm going to write about this? How do you first like, how do you find a story?
1: So it depends on the story. So for instance, when I wrote about the dengue vaccine, That was easy because we were publishing a trial on the dengue vaccine. And when I heard them present the data, how there was this mostly chance that you would protect against the vaccine, but protect against the disease, but this smidgen of a chance that you would actually make people sicker. I was like, in my mind, I thought, it's like that trolley, dilemma, you know what I mean? So like, I'm sitting in the meeting, I was like, Oh, my God, that's so interesting. Can you please let me write about this? You know what I mean? So that's an easy one. Because it's like, it's matched with a study, there's a very sort of straightforward dilemma associated with it. And like, I can, my mind can wrap itself around an essay like that for 1200 words. Much harder is something like, what I wrote about um, like the less is more crusade and for a million reasons. One is I've been thinking about it for a decade. And another is that I knew it would be controversial. So the question becomes, is there a way to peel apart a very compelling narrative in a way that is not attacking, but that is thoughtful and introduces some other ways of thinking about it? And then there's always this secondary question of like the why, like in this instance is why do we cling to this narrative in the first place? You know what I mean? So it's that secondary question that always will consume me for months. And I think like for the trolleyology piece, that there's not a secondary question there. It's like pretty straightforward. Do you know what I mean? But for those bigger essays, and again, this conflict of interest series is similar. This is something that's like become so ingrained in the culture of medicine and sort of discourse around medicine. And why is that? And how can I answer that question? And if I can't say something about it that hasn't already been said, then I shouldn't write it. But then like a million stories will come into my mind that are related. And then it just becomes a matter of choosing which story is relevant. And I often don't know that again until I get there. And also, so the thing that I struggle with most is structure. And how to organize a piece because I always feel like especially if there's like that secondary question that I'm getting at so like why do we cling to this narrative that less is more for instance and both like relaying all the data and the evidence and trying to make a point but also trying to sort of weave a story that has an arc that gets to that other point point. and that's really what I find most difficult so I agonize about structure
0: well, so let me ask you a couple of simple questions. Yeah. So, do you have a list of things you want to write about it that's sort of in your head or on a piece of paper somewhere that you're like, this is this is the things I'm going to tackle, or is it just something pops up and you think, this is it, I got to write this?
1: Um, both happen. So I have a thing in, in my head. I'm not a person who like writes things down, so I remember somebody was asking me this actually last night, like just even in the act of writing the essay it's not like I get an idea and I'm like, I just frantically write down it's once it's there, it's there. But yeah, so I have stuff rattling around that I know, like, I want to write about gender. And I know I want to write about gender. And and it's just a matter of, you know, waiting for the right moment, the right angle, it might be that I have to, there are like a couple things that I want to do. So that's in my head. I really want to write about, somebody like a doctor who has been like decimated by online ratings. Like that's something that has fascinates me. And like more broadly, I've been wanting to write more profiles. Like I I'm eager to sort of like try to write some things that are a little bit different. And I've always wanted to write a profile of somebody who starts a company that fails what it's like to sort of, you know, obviously there's, it would be sort of an extension of, some of the writing about industry that I did before, but also just that there's so many people who, who make this trek and um, don't succeed and what that's like and, and the risks that people have to take. Anyway, that's a whole, that's a tangent. Those are some of like the things that are rattling around in my mind. Also, I want to write this book about my grandfather. So I'm always thinking about that and I don't know what I'm waiting for, but I'm clearly waiting for something and I assume at some point I'm just going to sit down and do it.
0: And is that the, the process for you? I mean, is that you're when the spark... Is- Goes you just that's it you start writing and then then it comes out like or like you have all these things that are out there you know you want to do the grandfather thing it's been you've knew that you wanted to do I can't remember which one it was the conflict one or the other you know the uh, yeah
1: the less is more less is
0: more one forever but what was it that like you now is the time
1: probably just by virtue of not feeling compelled to write anything else (laughs) got it so I mean things do come up you know what I mean that have more urgency not no things ever that urgent but um you know, like a vaccine piece, or when Trump was elected, you know, there was so much about sort of misinformation and fake news. And so I wrote a couple pieces about how we get people to, you know, believe in science. And so, so those would take precedence. And then I guess a good example of sort of a story that leads to essays, I wrote recently about teamwork. And I wrote the The series, like exactly as it happened, which is that I was on call one weekend and this patient was in shock and the patient happened to be in the MICU. So I was, I was the consult attending. And so usually the patients in cardiogenic shock end up in the CCU, but because the patient was in the MICU, it was a different process than what I was used to. And I called the CCU attending and anyway, we had this whole shock team call, which is how the essay opened. And what struck me was that it was this sort of, this incredible teamwork dynamic that I am not used to, to dealing with or experiencing because I don't attend in the CCU. And so I don't at this point care for a lot of patients in cardiogenic shock. And then The contrast I experienced the next morning when I got called to see a patient with severe S and ascending cholangitis who needed ERCP and was going to need general anesthesia. And there was like the whole back and forth about whether or not the valve needed to be fixed before general anesthesia. And I was so struck by the difference in like people coming together or how I think it's far more status quo is that everybody's talking, talking to their people, but none of us are talking to each other. And then I was like, why? (laughs) Why is it this way? And the why led to that three part series. And, you know, that process was super interesting because I felt like all that's wrong with medicine is like necessary to address to answer the why. And I can't address all that's wrong with medicine. Even doing a three part series is a little bit a lot. (laughs) So then I had to really like focus in on what I thought were like the most interesting parts to unpack about this question. And I'm naturally drawn toward cognitive psychology, social psychology. And so, you know, the idea of psychological safety was super interesting to me. So I wrote about that. And then this idea of the bystander effect, and then sort of more deeply, why is it that we don't pay more attention to social psychology when you know, we're it's like medicine is it's like social psychology playground in so many ways. And, you know, what do we need to do to think more rigorously as a culture about the way we interact with each other. We talk about the system in terms of like healthcare delivery system and we piece it apart, but we don't think about like the way the humans are interacting. I thought that was really interesting and fun. So that that's an example of how something starts. And as I try to sort of understand why it happened, then I just get drawn in lots of different directions. And then I have to go back and figure out what's some, what would be like the most interesting. And that process, like Debbie Molina, my perspective editor, and she edits the Medicine Society, and we work very closely together. She edits me. She was deeply involved, I mean, at every juncture because I – this is one of the great things of now having worked with her for some time, but it's, it's much easier. I always write way, way, way too much. So it's much easier now to sort of work with her throughout. So she doesn't have to cut as much and sort of to know what she finds compelling and what would be interesting for the audience. Cause I, I'm not always very discerning. I think it would be much easier for her if I could do an outline and I can't. And we have both tried to figure out how to train my brain to better project into the future where this is going. And I have not figured out how to do it.
0: That's, um, that's pretty cool. Well,
1: <laughs> no, it's cool. It. No, I just love
0: it. Cause I, I'm also fascinated by this, like trying to get people to fit a certain expectation. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're doing is working, but it doesn't fit the mold in some no. ways. Right. And it's probably frustrating on some levels for, for people who work with you. Right. To not be able to get you to write the outline, but, again, like not having the outline is what, how you do it. right? And so do we want to spend all this energy and time trying to reprogram you or do we just want to put you in a position to be as successful as you can? Like, um,
1: no, it's a really good question. I mean, if my, if I could figure again, some short pieces I can outline, like I know exactly where I'm going, but those pieces don't end up being as like, meaningful to me or I don't learn as much because I the process of discovery is less. And that's part of the joy of writing.
0: So do you when you're done, do you know you're done?
1: Uh, or are you ever done? Never done. I mean I think most writers would say that. I think one of the most interesting things about writing is this it, it's got this contrast between being like so isolating and you're so in your own head, but you're entirely dependent on your reader. And so I know when I'm ready to like send it to my dad, <laughs> um, who's often you know, or there are a couple other people in my life I'll send things to for first pass, especially people if I've been talking to them about what I'm doing. But no, you never feel done, and honestly, I don't. I never read it once it's out unless like I'm getting you know criticized for something and I have to go back and check and say how did I say this? Did it come off wrong? You know things like that. But it it like kind of makes me feel sick when I see it.
0: For Lisa, best-known method means no outline, no planning. She writes organically and from the heart. Economist David Gallinson has described two different kinds of creativity. The first is the conceptual innovator like Picasso, who is a prodigy and who plans meticulously and then boom. The second is the experimental innovator who never has a clear, easy, articulated idea and does not work quickly. Quote, when they start off, they don't really know where they're going. They work by trial and error. They do endless drafts. They're perpetually unsatisfied. End quote. Lisa is clearly the latter. She can't even write an outline. And yet what Lisa does is working, and working so incredibly well. There is a bigger conversation here about expectations we place on people to adhere to a certain way of doing things. In Lisa's case, her mentors and her editors learn to adapt to her way of doing things and even if it was not convenient or what they were used to. And look at what we got, a true experimental innovator, a genius, if I may. So you have, we sort of touched on this a little bit, but you have this dual life where you spend some time seeing patients in the hospital and you went through um, a couple of stories you wrote that were clearly from that experience. It's obviously an important thing for you as a person, but it's also important for your writing. How do you see... I mean, is that, that's basically just necessary that you have that component of your life?
1: Yes, that is true. I, I definitely know if I had to choose between the two, I would choose medicine. You would. Oh, a hundred percent.
0: Even if it meant you had to do it full time. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So you don't see it as the medicine is there to help generate stories. No, Yes,
1: I really don't. I mean, I can't think of the last time I was actually like engaged in an interaction in the hospital well, maybe that's not true. Sometimes when I get in an argument, I think oh, I'm going to write about this. <laughs> but, but like in terms of like the patient stories that stay with me, like I don't ever think I feel very much like a doctor when I'm there. And then it's only after when I start to process everything that happened that like the stories will start to come to me and I'll start to wonder what the point of the story is. I mean, and that's the hard part because, and I, I see this all the time. Debbie and I actually teach a class together now, Debbie Molina and one thing that I think is really hard for any doctor who's trying to write is that we are exposed to so many stories, but a lot of the stories don't have a point. And so my brain, when I'm in doctor mode is, is like in such a different place than when I'm in writer mode. I, I can't even begin to explain. I mean, you probably understand. It's just like a completely different way of being. And I lo- I love just getting in the flow of doctoring where you're just like, you wake up in the morning, you have a sense of purpose. You know, you're just going to like go, 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 go. And you have to think, but like in a totally different way. And there's like a set of tasks and I just love it. So I think that writing makes me a better doctor. I'm not sure that doctoring makes me a better writer, but all of, obviously it's like a source of material. But I think that the fact that I get to reflect so much about being a doctor in our system, I do think it changes how I practice. Because every time I come off service, I spend so much time thinking about what it meant and digesting it that. When I start to do something that I know I'm not going to feel good about, it gives me pause. That's you
0: know? a, so interesting. I would have said the opposite. I would have said that I I would guess that your doctoring informs your writing more than your writing informs your doctoring.
1: I don't think so. That's
0: so interesting. That's a, it's fascinating. But they're clearly together, and the you have the blessing to be able to do do them both. Right, and they fit. And right it fits. Well,
1: right. I mean, I think, I guess, one way of making more sense of it is that there are so many other things in the world I could write about. I'm so interested in, in lots of other things. And I haven't, my. I mean, I write for the New England Journal, so I'm going to continue to write about health. But I, there are so many other things I would love to write about at some point, you know, and I mean, because I've been fascinated by humans and how humans behave. and
0: Well, I want to talk about that, but I want to come back to one thing you said before about the stories on having a point, because it oh, seems yeah. like it reminds me a little bit of what you have struggled with, with your grandfather's stories.
1: Yes, yes. No, exactly. So, I mean, he collected all of these stories about, you know, a, a quirk a patient might have or a funny joke a patient told him or... You know, a reminder not to be rushed with somebody or whatever it was. And either like the point feels a little hackneyed or there's just no point at all, especially as his mind sort of, you know, he was just like frantically getting these stories down at the end of his life. I realized, and, and this is the, the point I want to make in the book that I will one day write the sheer, like the, the mere existence of the stories is their point that, that he knew these people well enough to, in his dying days, Right about who they were and that he practiced in an era that allowed that. And, and that to me is the point of the story. And so figuring out how to get back to that somehow is sort of my what do you call it? North star? What do you okay, true? North. Sure. What do people say?
0: I don't know. It sounds like a consultant. Yeah. Exactly. I, mean, <laughs> I yeah. do not remember what it's called. It's yeah. like
1: something I've heard in business speak, yeah. but like, yeah, that's like what I feel like guides me is like under, trying to understand like how to make space for that again.
0: I'm biased, but I think Lisa is the best physician writer out there right now. She hasn't won the fancy awards at least yet, but she will. Lisa is tackling the hardest subjects, and those often engulfed in controversy, mired in dogma, or those considered untouchable politically. She has done this time and again, whether it's her series on conflict of interest or her recent series on teamwork. It's not shit-stirring either. Lisa really does seek to challenge conventions, and she does so with courage and grace and of course art, the Cezanne kind. Most interesting to me, of all, though, is how Lisa sees herself as a doctor. A third-generation doctor from a family full of doctors. A doctor first, and a writer second. Her writing informs her doctoring more than her doctoring informs her writing. But I wonder if she's romanticizing what is effectively her hobby. Much as current San Francisco residents romanticize the San Francisco of old, or much how current doctors view doctoring of old. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. It's an academic discussion, because fortunately for us, Lisa does not need to choose, and undoubtedly her two passions inform and feed each other, and it all fits so neatly with her creative process, which brought her through multiple different graduate degrees to end up as one of the great and important physician writers of our time. That is best-known method.